Well, welcome back from the break, everyone. Yes, and let me introduce the next speaker. Um, <laughs> Connie, uh, Constance Benson, uh, professor of medicine at uh, University of California, San Diego, um, who has, like a lot of HIV um, ID clinicians, been drawn to respond to the COVID epidemic, and uh, we'll talk about uh, how we stand. I think there's some very new um, data that she'll share with us. So, Connie, take it away. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to talk with you. Here are my financial relationships with commercial entities. Um, learning objectives for this presentation, and you can read about both of those in your e-syllabus that you've been provided. I'm going to start off my talk with a brief discussion about U.S. epidemiology, diagnostic, and pathogenesis updates, uh, hopefully with some new information. I think uh, the slide that you're seeing here on the screen represents data that are actually uh, accumulating more rapidly than we can keep updating the slides. And the, I'm only going to point out in the U.S. that we're now well beyond 4 million cases of COVID-19. And now, as I heard this morning as, as well, more than 150,000 deaths due to COVID-19 in the U.S., with the dark red states being areas that continue to be hotspots around the country. You all have heard a lot of information about the disproportionate effect of COVID-19 cases and deaths among Black and Latinx populations. This uh, apparently is uh, in relationship to several factors that include the socioeconomic status of uh, people of color, particularly in our country, being essential workers that have to be in the workplace, also the socioeconomic characteristics of the jobs that they perform, making them at risk for getting exposed to COVID-19 and often living in crowded or multi-generational uh, home environments where they can easily become more exposed. And lastly, the inequities we always see in this pop subpopulations of our country related to access to appropriate health care and often access to clinical trials. So human-to-human -human transmission, obviously an area that has been broadly debated in the news media over the last six months. We know that transmission occurs through droplet and respiratory aerosols. Aerosols more immediately have raised a lot of attention. I think as we've begun to learn more about the virus, we've also learned more about the fact that Aerosols are an important con contributor to human-to-human -human transmission. We've also seen some de-emphasizing of fomite transmission, the strong attention early in the pandemic to scrubbing down every surface with Lysol and bleach uh, has panned out to suggest that fomite transmission is relatively uncommon. Most people have assumed now based on data that have accumulated in the last six months that peak infectiousness for people who are capable of transmitting occur in the pre-symptomatic and early infection phases. And I'll review that in a moment when we go over um, diagnostic updates. 
Um, the other key point, as we're learning also through the evolution of this pandemic, masks save lives. Masks reduce personal viral load exposure. They reduce aerosols expectorated into the environment. They lower the likelihood of infection for those who are exposed in a setting where both people are wearing masks and potentially can result in less severe infection, particularly because masks reduce the amount of virus that another person may be exposed to in in an exposure setting. So you're all very well aware that viral nucleic acid testing through PCR is the primary method currently for COVID-19 diagnosis. We also know that the sensitivity and specificity may vary, although we are getting better with the kits that are available to us now. False negatives generally relate to improper sampling or handling of those samples, perhaps to low viral loads in the person who's infected, and rarely there may be viral mutations that are not picked up by whatever PCR kit an individual laboratory might be using. We know that as antibody develops, SARS-CoV-2 RNA is generally undetectable in most individuals by about day 14 following the onset of symptoms, although RNA uh, detection may be prolonged, and this has been a current issue of debate in the literature and among experts, we still have no convincing evidence that prolonged shedding of viral RNA is associated with infectious virus or replicating replication-competent virus, but this remains of some concern in certain individuals. Serologic detection provides a wider window for time of detection, is most useful for surveillance and identification of people who may want to be convalescent plasma donors, We've been plagued by variability and sensitivity and specificity of many of the early serologic testing platforms, although, again, these continue to improve as the science dictates. So false negatives can occur from poorly sensitive assays. False positives can occur due to cross-reactivity. Some feel that cross-reactivity in the setting of other coronaviruses may be responsible for many false positive tests. This slide represents the diagnostic trajectory of PCR and antibody responses. Generally, people following a SARS-CoV-2 exposure will have about a one-week period of before the onset of symptoms, the incubation period, about Between one week and two days prior to the onset of symptoms, viral load begins to increase and may be detectable by PCR, although certainly peak viral load appears to occur about one week after the onset of symptoms, and then PCR levels begin to decline over time as IgG antibodies and IgM antibodies begin to rise with peak antibody levels seen generally in week three to four following infection. Um, what we don't know yet is uh, are whether IgG antibody titers and neutralizing antibody titers are um, durable. That's an intense area of interest in vaccine development. We do know that IgG antibody titers appear to be higher in those individuals with more severe symptomatic disease than in those who are 
asymptomatic or have mild to moderate disease. And this may be related to both the ultimate viral load in those individuals and the duration of their infection. I just want to make a few words about, a few comments about pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2 infection because I think they relate to some of the discussion about therapy and vaccine development. You've all heard a lot about the RNA genome for SARS-CoV-2, which encodes for a spike envelope, membrane, nucleocapsid, and other viral proteins. The spike protein has received the most attention. SARS-CoV-2 uses it to bind to ACE2 receptors and uses a cofactor on the surface of lung, oronasal, GI tract, and endothelial cells, the transmembrane protease serine 2 cofactor. Early after infection of a cell, there's an inflammatory programmed cell death that releases damage-associated proteins, and these may be recognized by alveolar macrophages, endothelial and epithelial cells, and when infected, stimulate the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines. It's these pro-inflammatory cytokines and the pro-inflammatory loop that is the singular feature associated with SARS-CoV-2. The cytokines recruit mononuclear cells, macrophages, and cytotoxic T cells, and it's the distribution of whether one has a healthy immune response, meaning that you form virus-specific cytotoxic T cells and neutralizing antibody that control the infection, or a defective immune response that continues the proliferation of these pro-inflammatory cytokines and the pro-inflammatory loop leading to cytokine storm conditions that occur in some individuals. We don't yet know what happens with SARS-CoV-2 that makes one more prone to this defective immune response, but it's an area of intense investigation. I'm not going to go through these disease classifications. I just want to make a couple of points here that As you've been hearing in the news media, the journal of the New York Times and Washington Post, the 80% or the vast majority of individuals who become infected may be asymptomatic or have mild illness, and 15% may have moderate to more severe illness, often requiring hospitalization, and about 5% of individuals go on to the critical features that I just talked about, the cytokine storm, ARDS, respiratory failure, shock, and multi-organ system dysfunction. And again, intensive efforts to understand why some people go on to that more serious pathway while others are able to control the infection. We do know that factors associated with increased mortality in hospitalized patients have been well described now. And I'll just point out that probably the single most important factor related to increased mortality is age. In this prospective observational study of more than 20,000 patients from the UK, you can see that the older the age, the higher the likelihood or hazard ratio for mortality. Obviously, um, male sex, chronic underlying comorbidities such as hypertension, cardiovascular disease, COPD, asthma, kidney disease, And more importantly, obesity, particularly among younger people, may lead to a higher risk of mortality. So what about COVID-19 and people living with HIV? 
I only have a few slides to show here because there isn't a lot of published data about HIV co-infection with SARS-CoV-2, but a couple of series I've highlighted on this slide have suggested that there are no differences really in disease acquisition, disease severity on hospitalization, and adverse outcomes associated with disease in individuals who do or do not have HIV co-infection. What's more important from these slides is that people with HIV co-infection often have comorbidities such as obesity, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hyperlipidemia, and chronic kidney disease, all of which lead to worsening outcomes associated with COVID-19. We also know that um, Black and Latinx individuals are overrepresented in COVID-19 as well as in our HIV populations, and that may also contribute to comorbidity and mortality in HIV. Similar data have also emerged from uh, resource-limited settings. These data from the Western Cape of more than 12,000 people in South Africa with COVID-19 also suggest that there's only a modest effect of HIV related to um, mortality. And the older age and underlying comorbidities were more important features associated with HIV-related deaths due to COVID-19. The one piece of information that doesn't get publicized here in the U.S. very well, but may still be important for some of our patients, has been the impact of the COVID-19 response. Um, this is just a UN AIDS study looking at people in lower and middle income countries, but I would venture to say that some of our uh, settings in the U.S. may be experiencing some of this as well, that lockdowns and barriers to the supply chain and transportation of goods may interrupt our delivery of antiretroviral therapies and increase those costs and we may experience treatment interruptions as a consequence of people being unable to access their medications. UNAIDS suggests that depending on the degree of treatment interruption, you may be, we may be seeing in the near future excess deaths related to um, HIV that don't have necessarily to do with COVID-19 co-infection, but rather interruption of therapy for HIV. So I'm going to spend the rest of my time now talking about treatment of COVID-19 disease. There are a number of key therapeutic classes that have been under investigation. The majority of antiviral agents have been pulled off the shelf as repurposed drugs for other diseases. I've lined through some of them that have been tested merely to point out that randomized clinical trials or major uh, observational data have really refuted the activity of many of those initial antiviral drugs that we used. In particular, hydroxychloroquine and lopinavir-ritonavir have been studied and carefully done randomized clinical trials and been shown to have no specific benefit and the potential for harm. I'm going to talk about some of the other drugs highlighted in red here but immunomodulators are the other therapeutic class for which we have randomized clinical trials that are underway and trying to take advantage of that key feature of COVID-19 disease, the cytokine storm reaction in people with more severe disease. 
um, hot off the presses, the tocilizumab placebo-controlled randomized clinical trial, tocilizumab and IL-6 inhibitor, um, failed to show any benefit of tocilizumab, and uh, that was in a press release yesterday. We have a number of others of these still under investigation, but I think the quote in the gray box here is the most important. Management strategies and treatment for patients with COVID-19 are rapidly evolving. The optimal agents to treat infection or prevent disease progression remain ill-defined. I'm going to spend a good part of my time focused only on randomized, well-controlled therapeutic clinical trials for the next few moments. And unfortunately for you all listening to me, that's a relative paucity of the data available. Remdesivir is the drug that we currently have available to us as the key antiviral therapy for COVID-19. Remdesivir is a broadly acting nucleoside analog. We're all very familiar with this class of drugs, an RNA polymerase inhibitor. It's very active at nanomolar levels in human airway epithelial cells. It's a broad spectrum agent, was taken off the shelf because it was early on evaluated in SARS-CoV-1, MERS-CoV disease, and Ebola virus disease. And in animal and primate models, has been shown to have both clinical and virologic efficacy against SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. It's generally been associated with a favorable safety profile in healthy volunteers, in phase one studies, and in patients with acute Ebola disease, the only treatment emergent adverse events being liver transaminase elevations. The PK profile associated with this drug indicates that nucleoside triphosphate metabolites maintain high and persistent levels in intracellular milieu with a plasma half-life that's really quite short. This is an important feature after an IV infusion because while the drug is a CYP3A4 inhibitor, one doesn't expect to see significant drug-drug interactions due to the rapid clearance after IV administration of this agent. I will point out, however, that a drug-drug interaction does exist between remdesivir and chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine Both of those drugs have been shown in vitro to decrease uh, nucleoside triphosphate metabolite levels of remdesivir, so these drugs should not be used together. I'm going to talk now about the results of the preliminary clinical trial, which was an adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial, or ACT. The ACT trial is now undergoing its third stage of evaluation, but the first stage was the initial placebo-controlled phase three trial. This trial enrolled adult patients who were hospitalized with moderate to severe documented SARS-CoV-2 infection and oxygenation abnormalities. They were randomized to receive remdesivir with a loading dose on day one and then 10 days of intravenous infusions once daily compared to IV placebo once daily. The primary endpoint of this trial, one we're not often used to using in antiviral therapy studies, was a time to recovery by day 29 according to an ordinal scale. And this means that the day of recovery was the first day that a patient satisfied one of the three following ordinal scale um, 
levels. They were either hospitalized, not requiring oxygen, and no longer requiring ongoing medical care for their COVID disease. They were not hospitalized but had some limitation on activities or required home oxygen, or they were not hospitalized and had no limitations on activities. They could be one of each of these three to be a recovery, but the day of recovery was the first day they satisfied one of those categories. The next slide shows you demographic and clinical characteristics at baseline. Again, um, most of you have seen this publication, so I'm only going to make a couple of points about this slide. The median time from symptom onset to the time of randomization in this trial was nine days. And over 50% of individuals had two or more underlying comorbid conditions, the most common of these being hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. And the majority of individuals, or the highest majority subgroup of these individuals, were hospitalized and requiring supplemental oxygen at randomization, and the second highest subgroup were, were those hospitalized receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO at the time of randomization. The primary outcome for this preliminary results showed that remdesivir was associated with a shorter time to recovery in the remdesivir group compared to placebo, 11 versus 15 days with a rate ratio of 1.32 that was highly statistically significant. Outcomes were similar for those with a duration of symptoms at the time of randomization of less than or equal to or greater than 10 days, so no impact on duration of symptoms. While we don't generally like to evaluate people based on primary outcomes by subgroups, there were important features of this trial by subgroup that you should know about. So people who entered the study with an ordinal score of four, basically being hospitalized but not requiring oxygen, there were overlapping confidence intervals between remdesivir and placebo. And although the rate ratio favored remdesivir, this was not significant. In ordinal score five, one of the major subgroups, there was a greater statistically significant difference favoring remdesivir in this ordinal score group with a rate ratio of 1.47 that was highly statistically significant. But among those with higher ordinal scores, particularly those who were already on mechanical ventilation, there was no difference between placebo and remdesivir. In secondary outcomes of mortality and day 15 improvement in ordinal score, overall, the mortality ratio, our hazard ratio favored remdesivir compared to placebo with 54 deaths in the placebo arm and 32 in the remdesivir arm, but this didn't quite reach statistical significance in Kaplan-Meier estimates with the exception of that group uh, subgroup of ordinal score five at baseline which had a highly statistically significant improvement in mortality. And then patients with improvement of ordinal score by day 15, this too was highly significant favoring remdesivir with an odds ratio of 1.5. This just reiterates some of these key subgroup outcomes, but I like this plot because it shows you both the wide confidence intervals around many of the values, but also shows you the directionality for almost all of the key subgroups that were evaluated in this preliminary report 
with the vast majority of them favoring remdesivir, although crossing one in terms of confidence intervals with some of them. And again, highlighting the uh, ordinal score five being the best at having the best outcomes. And interestingly, those of a younger age group having better outcomes, again, reemphasizing the influence of age on mortality. Safety outcomes um, demonstrated that there were fewer serious adverse events and fewer grade three or four adverse events in the remdesivir arm compared to placebo. And virtually none of the adverse events that were reported were directly attributed to study medication with the possible exception of increased aminotransferases. Interestingly, in this study, there were very few um, thromboembolic complications uh, across the trial and no deaths were attributed to study medications. I'm going to make a few comments just related to a couple of other published randomized trials of remdesivir. The first of these was conducted in China and published in The Lancet. This was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that randomized 237 patients who we received a two-to-one ratio remdesivir versus placebo, I want to point out this study was terminated early because at the time the centers at which it was being done had controlled their outbreak. So the study was statistically underpowered for the primary outcomes. However, as you can see from the Kaplan-Meier curve, the, um, there were overlapping curves between remdesivir and the, the placebo control group. But another key subgroup demonstrated um, benefit of remdesivir in median time to recovery in those who had symptoms for less than or equal to 10 days. And then the last randomized trial that's been published thus far was not a placebo-controlled trial, although there is a placebo-controlled version of this trial currently in progress with uh, comparing remdesivir given five versus 10 days duration for a similar population to that with the placebo controlled trials. I should point out that patients who were randomized to the 10 day course of remdesivir had significantly worse baseline clinical status. And after controlling for this, the time to clinical improvement in this study overall was similar, but um, for Individuals in the five-day group, the time, the clinical improvement of two or more points on the ordinal scale was slightly higher in the five-day group than the 10-day group, but this was not statistically significant. And it's this trial that has led to the recommendation with the EUA approval to use remdesivir in clinical settings that one can opt to use it for a five-day duration in patients. The other large randomized trial that's received a lot of attention and has been very uh, clearizing guidelines is the dexamethasone in hospitalized patients. And this is the recovery trial. The study design, like many of the ones we're seeing now in COVID-19 realm, was a randomized open-label adaptive platform trial that compared different possible treatments with usual care. So not a placebo control, but a standard of care control arm. These were all hospitalized patients with clinically suspected or laboratory confirmed SARS-CoV-2. The randomization was two to one. So 4, 000, over 4,000 patients were allocated 
to usual standard of care and 2,000 allocated to dexamethasone in the randomization. And the primary endpoint was 28-day mortality. <clears throat> One point, key point here is that patients who were randomized could be randomized either to dexamethasone or to one of other suitable, several other suitable and available treatments being evaluated in the platform trial. And these included hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir, azithromycin, tocilizumab, and convalescent plasma. It was what we have often in the HIV world referred to as a large simple trial. It was conducted primarily web-based. The case report form for the web-based entry included uh, a very limited um, data set with demographics, respiratory support, major comorbidities, and what treatments might be available at each site collected at entry. And there was only a single online follow-up form collected at the time of hospital discharge, death, or day 28, again with a modestly limited number of of data points collected on that single online form. Secondary outcomes are listed here having to do with time to discharge, mechanical ventilation, and cause-specific mortality. And these are some of the baseline or some of the results the mean age was slightly higher in the dexamethasone group than in the standard of care group. There were more men than women, and uh, more than half had at least one underlying comorbidity. Only 89% of patients had confirmed SARS-CoV-2, and randomization, and 60% were on oxygen. The median duration of dexamethasone given was seven days, but again, to point eight percent of those in the usual care group also received dexamethasone during follow-up. A small percentage also received hydroxychloroquinetoritonavir, and a quarter of patients in the standard of care and dexamethasone group also received azithromycin, and a small percentage had a second randomization to either tocilizumab versus standard of care or convalescent plasma versus standard of care. So some of these features might have obscured a little bit of the ability to tease out individual effects of each of these agents. Primary outcome results are displayed here on your slide, both in graphic depiction and in uh, comments, but the 28-day mortality clearly favored dexamethasone with 22.9% mortality rate at 28 days in that group compared to 25.7 in the standard of care arm. The individual groups that appeared to derive the most benefit from dexamethasone were those who were already on mechanical ventilation or ECMO at entry, clearly a larger disparity in between dexamethasone and its improvement in 28-day mortality versus standard of care. The benefit also was primarily observed in individuals who had symptoms for more than seven days, and there was no benefit and possible harm in those who were not receiving oxygen at the time of randomization. You can see the rate ratios here clearly favoring dexamethasone for those on invasive mechanical ventilation and oxygen. I just want to diverge for a moment to look at the overall issue of mortality. 
and comparing, not comparing across two trials, but just looking at the mortality rates that were seen in the remdesivir placebo-controlled trial compared to the recovery trial, you can see for that key ordinal score five, people admitted with um, on oxygen at randomization, the recovery trial standard of care arm had more than twice the overall mortality as the placebo arm in the remdesivir trial, and likewise, a significantly higher mortality rate among the dexamethasone recipients in the recovery arm compared to the remdesivir recipients in the ACT trials, both overall and in that key ordinal score of five. So I'm going to spend the last few moments talking about vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2, I wish I could tell you I have a lot of data to share about vaccine trials, but I don't. So we're going to talk a little bit about vaccine development and opportunities and challenges. Um, That last uh, review, um, looking at clinicaltrials.gov and other platforms available to us, I think there are more than 150 different vaccine constructs under investigation. Um, multiple vaccine platforms are being tested, including protein-based, messenger RNA-based, DNA-based, chimeric virus-based, and attenuated virus-based, as well as non-replicating viral vector um, <clears throat> constructs under investigation. This table shows you a very modest list of the ones that appear to be um, along, furthest along in human clinical trials development, And the one that just started enrolling patients, the Moderna study, is a messenger RNA-based vaccine construct that encodes for the spike protein, is just starting phase three clinical trials this month. The Oxford-AstraZeneca construct is an adenovirus, non-replicating viral vector-based vaccine construct that also um, codes for the spike protein and eliciting, hoping to elicit neutralizing antibody against the spike protein. That will be starting in clinical trials in mid-August. And Johnson, <clears throat> Johnson and Johnson and Janssen, also an ad five vector spike protein construct. Hopefully, will start trials either in late August or early September. Regeneron and BioNTech, Pfizer shortly following on to these in late August and early September. So by September, surely we will have five large phase three clinical trials ongoing with um, various constructs of vaccines in development. Um, We do know from data recently published with the Moderna trial that in rhesus macaques, this particular construct had good stimulation of immune responses and protective benefit, and we hope to see that replicated in humans. Similarly, in phase one trials with the AstraZeneca construct, we've seen good immunogenicity in normal human volunteers. What we don't know and what continue to be challenges in vaccine development are what are the correlates of immunity, similar to our ongoing conversation related to HIV vaccines, We don't know the durability of immunity, and we don't know how immunogenic any of these constructs might be in the most vulnerable populations, particularly elderly individuals. Things we do know that make us a little bit worried about vaccine 
immunity are that, as I've alluded to earlier, symptomatic people make more big, vigorous um, immune responses than asymptomatic individuals. And in particular, you can see from this study um, from Nature Medicine, IgG antibody levels in symptomatic people were higher than uh, those in asymptomatic people, although not quite the same effect for IgM, or at least the magnitude of the, the effect, not the same. But um, in particular, we're concerned both about the neutralizing antibody levels and the overall antibody levels being higher in those individuals who have more symptomatic disease than those with asymptomatic disease. And this gives us pause about people who recover from asymptomatic disease not having both either a robust or a durable antibody response. And that seems to play out in many of the studies that have been done to date, looking at natural coronavirus immunity, suggesting that viral Again, that asymptomatic individuals during the acute phase of infection produce a robust response, but that response falls off relatively quickly in the convalescent phase. Similarly, maybe even more quickly in people with symptomatic disease. And we're concerned that if natural immunity is not very durable, what does that say about vaccine-induced immunity? This study um, looked at... uh, an AD5 um, vector-based coronavirus vaccine directed at the spike protein. And although this is slide represents interferon gamma expressing cells as an attempt to look at innate immune responses to this vaccine, both the antibody and the innate immune responses in this vaccine trial, which looked at healthy volunteers, administered a low, middle, or high dose of this particular vaccine construct, you can see that robust antibody responses and robust interferon expressing um, cellular responses were seen by date 14. They were still fairly robust by date 28, but already, already starting to fall off by day 28 in, and maybe falling off to a greater degree in those individuals who had pre-existing AD5 neutralizing antibody titers. Again, a feature that we'll be paying a lot of attention to with these vaccine constructs that look at um, AD5 viral vector uh, vaccine platforms. So in conclusion, I'll just close by saying that remdesivir is the currently the only antiviral drug we have available that's been shown to be effective in randomized clinical trials, reducing time to recovery, improving survival in select subgroups, and currently available for treatment of moderate to severe severe COVID-19 disease. Dexamethasone appears to improve survival for those with severe disease, particularly those on mechanical ventilation already. Prospective randomized clinical trials have been recently completed with two immunomodulating agents, As I just alluded to, tocilizumab um, compared with placebo had no benefit and uh, is no longer likely to be considered for individuals alone, although trials um, combining tocilizumab with remdesivir are ongoing. We just completed follow-up of the baricitinib Janus kinase or Jack kinase um, 1-2 inhibitor, baricitinib 
um, being in, used in combination with remdesivir in the ACT-2 trial. And we hope to have results of that trial by mid-August. Um, again, multiple vaccines are under active development. And however, I think given the tempering of enthusiasm that might be necessary with both um, native immunity and vaccine immunity being somewhat less durable than we would like to see, this pathway to an effective coronavirus vaccine may be longer and a more winding road than, road than we expect. You'll hear a lot in the coming weeks about the active Operation Warp Speed um, public-private partnership between pharma and the U.S. government and NIH, developing rapid platform trials to evaluate antiviral direct-acting agents, antiviral broadly neutralizing antibodies, and multiple candidate vaccines. So the next six months will indeed be um, progressing at Operation Warp Speed level. So I'll stop there and thank you and take time for questions. Great, Connie. <clears throat> thank you very much. We're uh, running a little tight on time, and we have some um, <clears throat> some questions from the from the audience. Um, I think one one of them is uh, first of all, is dexamethasone along with remdesivir now considered part of standard of care? Uh, is that the comparison for the trials that are uh, that are getting underway? Um, and then another person asked about the role of anticoagulation. Um, you know, the, those are both good points. So currently there is no clinical trial combining remdesivir with dexamethasone underway. I think dexamethasone continues to be a somewhat controversial point. I think part of, partly related to what many of us in the U.S. think is a much higher mortality rate, both in the standard of care arm and in the dexamethasone arm, compared to what we've been seeing in our own clinical practices here in the U.S. And so that raises some concerns. There also are some concerns about the potential for dexamethasone to be associated with um, higher rates of some adverse events. We didn't see much from the publication or the presentations from that trial about adverse events. Not much was collected, so it's hard to know whether the outcomes from dexamethasone uh, might be contributing to other adverse outcomes. However, having said that, the NIH guidelines have already incorporated dexamethasone as their standard of care and recommended it in people for who have uh, severe disease and are receiving oxygen or mechanical ventilation. Many places around the country have incorporated remdesivir already into their standard of care guidelines, as well as incorporating hydroxy, or uh, excuse me, I have hydroxychloroquine on the brain still, um, dexamethasone into their standard of care guidance. I think we'll see more emerge about this question. Um, <clears throat> I guess I was long-winded in my response, so I've already forgotten the second question, Paul. Um, uh, anticoagulation. Oh, yes. So anticoagulation continues to be an important point. I think uh, one thing that that is curious to a lot of us, on the West Coast, we, at least um, Southern California, we have not seen a lot of thrombotic and thromboembolic events in our ICUs and have not been standardly using 
um, anticoagulation except as you otherwise would for an ICU patient on mechanical ventilation. East Coast has been a very different experience, and there's been a lot published in the literature from Europe and the East Coast about the thromboembolic events. Um, there aren't, there are randomized clinical trials either in development or getting underway looking at various approaches to treating that, but we don't have results from those as of yet to say that that should be standard of care. Connie, I know that there's been uh, controversy and still data being collected on the possibility of second infections um, after recovery. Um, we know from dengue that second infections and that virus can uh, be uh, worse because of ADE. Um, any concern from what we've seen now about ADE um, in vaccines with, uh, uh, with COVID or in, in people who have recovered? Well, this, again, is a very interesting pathogenesis question. My daughter is a veterinarian, and in veterinary medicine, there used to be a coronavirus vaccine that was given to felines who had a serious uh, coronavirus infection to prevent that, and they stopped using that vaccine because it produced um, ADE in that in their uh, animals. So that vaccine is no longer being used in veterinary medicine. That theoretical consideration continues to be a problem in in our vaccine development, although we've not really seen evidence to suggest that it happens in humans as of yet, but we're very early in vaccine testing. Phase two trials did not appear to uh, well, most of the phase one trials were done in healthy volunteers. Phase two trials with the current constructs did not appear to uh, see that, but we don't, haven't had a lot of infections to report. And sec- the issue of second infections, again, this comes up because the, there have been a lot of observational data published on people with prolonged viral RNA shedding who come back into the hospital with recurrent symptoms. Right now, again, I don't believe, and from none of the the literature I've reviewed, I don't believe there is convincing evidence that we see reinfection with SARS-CoV-2 yet. But given what we know about the potential for attenuation or lack of durability of of immunity from natural infection, it may be that in the next few months we will see truly second infections. And I think we're worried about ADE, but I don't think we have enough data to know whether that will happen or not. Got it. <clears throat> there are a number of questions, but I think in the in the time that we have, maybe just a, one last one that combines several questions that we received on the association of COVID-19 disease with asthma and the possibility of uh, eosinophil, uh, eosinophil deficiency, <laughs> eosinophil <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. I can see the questions too. So, yes, there's a, obviously when people talk about um, COPD and other pulmonary diseases being predisposing factors associated with mortality, there was an early suggestion that because people with asthma are being treated with corticosteroids, they may actually have less severe disease. I think in controlled cl- trials, that's not really borne out. Um, we've collected a lot of data in several of the randomized controlled trials on people with asthma who were receiving corticosteroids, and the severity of disease did not appear to be different. Um, 
Whether that will play out as time goes on, hard to know. Um, I think we probably need to move on, Paul, to our... uh, I'm going to toss the baton back to you to introduce our next speaker. Thank you, Connie. That was great. Spectacular. Great.